Um, my name is uh, Chris Buxton, and I am from uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas, a long way from here. Uh, I want to thank you for being here. I saw on the, on the uh, lineup that uh, Jeff Walling is doing a keynote right now, so I appreciate you being here. <laughs> uh, stiff competition there. Um, of course, the people in the back are going to be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I have been a campus minister now for almost 21 years, devoted most of my adult life to working with college students uh, on the State University campus. Uh, the last nine plus years worked at, have worked at my alma mater, which is Arkansas State, go Red Wolves. Um, we, uh, we, I think we have a in my opinion, a crisis, really, um, in, in terms of uh, lack of campus ministries uh, going out and being started and planted. And, and so today, I just want to really, I hope this doesn't feel like a data dump, because uh, I'm, I'm going to be you know, throwing out a, a good bit of just information. Uh, and I, that's not normally the way I like to present. Uh, but I want to just try to make a compelling case for how big a deal campus ministry is. I mean, I put a pretty kind of bombastic title up here, you know, the most strategic and neglected mission field in Church of Christ. You'll have to decide whether I, uh, whether I make my case or not. Um, but I think, that, uh, I think that campus ministry is, is direly important, is crucial to God's kingdom work. And uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try to, to uh, convince you uh, put my cards on the table. I'm going to try to convince you of how big a deal uh, campus ministry really is. So let me start with this. Um, have you ever thought about, well here, oh, let me, I forgot to mention, let me uh, give you my email address. Uh, I have everything I'm going to say today I have in a far more in-depth uh, written form that I, I'll be glad to, send, to email you a copy of if you, if you want it. I'll be more than happy to share that with you. Uh, like a footnoted, you know, very detailed. Uh, what I'm going to share today is is more more uh, basic. And then I also want to mention that I'm a part of the uh, organization called Campus for Christ, and uh, I do want to promo our uh, our conference that will be coming up at the end of July. And you can go to campusforchrist.net to uh, to see details about that. We would love for you to come join us in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, for that conference. It, it's going to be at Harding School of Theology this summer. And uh, so we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. Uh, it's it's the, the main gathering for campus ministries and churches of Christ. So if, uh, if you are a part of a campus ministry or if you just have interest, uh, we would love for you to come join us. You ever wonder why God put the nation of Israel where he did on the map. You know, of all the places that God could have sent his chosen people on the globe, why, why Canaan? Why was it this specific location on the map? I, I assume, and I haven't, I haven't done a lot of geographical, historical research on this, on this issue, but my assumption is that there probably, at that time in human history, were lots of places on the globe where God's people could have just moved in, empty, they could have just gone there. So why did they go to this place? Why did they go to this place on the globe? And I think there may be multiple reasons for that, but I think the primary reason is exactly because there were already people there 
but because at that time in history, this was what we now call Palestine, what in the Bible is called Canaan, was the primary land bridge in the ancient world. It was literally the center of the universe. It was the center of the known world. You had, down here, you have the, uh, the Egyptian kingdom. Up here, you have the, uh, the Mesopotamian kingdoms like Assyria and Babylonia. And r running right through the middle of Palestine is this ancient trade route called the Via Maris that connected Egypt to Mesopotamia. So literally, God's people were, are sitting, sitting in the center of the known world, the crossroads of culture, if you will. And they had to go in and they had to fight these bloody wars to take this land. It could have gone so many other places where they could have just moved in. But they didn't do that because they needed to be strategically placed in the center of the world. Why? Well, it's pretty clear as you read through Scripture. Isaiah makes this case very prominently that God's people were to be a light to the nations. They had, you know, like in the Christian world, we think of, of mission as centrifugal, in other words, going out. The mission that God gave Israel was a centripetal mission, in other words, a drawing mission. The goal was for the light of, of Yahweh to, to shine out into the world and for people to be drawn to it and then to return to where they came from with the knowledge of the one true God. Isaiah says multiple times, you are to be a light to the nations. In, in the Torah, there is no missional mandate equivalent to the Great Commission. But while Israel is rarely sent to the nations, Jonah would be maybe the one exception in the Old Testament, while, while uh, God's people are not sent to the nations, there is great concern for the nations. I, I want to read that this isn't to me an amazing statement. It's part, of, it's part of Solomon's prayer when he dedicated the temple. Listen to what he says. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Notice what Solomon says. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. You remember when Jesus got really mad? Why did he get mad? They're setting up in the marketplace, which, was, which would have been the court of the Gentiles, the very place where the nations were supposed to come and draw near to Yahweh is the very place they were setting up their, their market. In other words, the whole idea for Israel, all the way back to Abram, when God goes to Abram and says, I will, I will make you into a great nation, but then he says, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Right? God's, God's, in other words, God's blessing of Israel was never primarily about Israel. It was about the blessing of the whole world, the nations. Israel was simply a conduit through which God's, through which God's blessings would flow. 
And, and the mission that God gave Israel, again, was, a, was one of drawing and sending. Drawing and sending. The Queen of Sheba is a classic example of how it was supposed to work. You remember that story during the kingdom of Solomon? Uh, in 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon, and she observed Israel's peace and prosperity and wisdom, and it says, the text says that she was, quote, overwhelmed. She said, praise be to, to the Lord, your God, because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. The queen of Sheba comes and beholds the good governance of Yahweh and begins to praise God herself. That was exactly what was supposed to happen. The drawing and sending, the centripetal mission of the Israelite nation. Now, we all know, if you're familiar at all with the story of Israel, that its history is marked by covenant rebellion and mission failure. The light that was supposed to shine out from, from Israel was often flickering or snuffed out. But we can't lose the point. We can't forget that the reason God put Israel where he did and the mission that he gave Israel was to be one in which there was an ingathering of nations who are drawn to the light, and then they go back out from where they came from with the glory and the knowledge of Yahweh. Now, you may be wondering, what, what does this have to do with Caleb's ministry? Um, well, if you were to pick up the mantle of the centripetal mission of ancient Israel, if you were going to figure out where is the center, the crossroads, of modern culture, where would you go? Where, in other words, is the modern Via Maris today? You might say London, you might say Paris, you might say Washington, D.C., you might say right here in Los Angeles. Pretty good case for L.A. because it's the entertainment capital of the world, and that has maybe as much influence on things as anything. But I think if I had to pick, if I had to pick the Via Maris, I've already tipped my hand, so you know what I'm going to say. I would say it's the American University. The university is the center, is the crossroads of our culture. You know, Daniel uh, presented uh, yesterday about reaching millennials, and he, he works at the University of Washington, and he said, the campus that I walk onto every day is the culture that everybody will be a part of in a few years. The university, in other words, is the leading edge of American culture, but it's not just the leading edge of American culture, it's the leading edge of world culture. And the American university is shaping our future generations in astronomical ways. I've seen it for most of my adult life. And you have too, if you really think about it. So, let's talk about why that is. Why is it, if, if it is true, that the American, the American University is the most strategic and most neglected mission field in our fellowship. Why is that? Well, the first, the first thing I want to say is that it represents the American dream. Um, have you noticed that, if you, well, if you're like me and you have a kid that's close to college age, you have certainly noticed the astronomical increase in tuition, <laughs> even since I was a student. Why is that? Now, there are lots of factors, I'm sure. 
But the primary factor, it seems, that, that universities are, seem to almost be immune to normal economic forces <laughs> is because there is an almost unbelievable pressure in our culture for everybody to go to college. And so essentially, colleges can charge whatever they want because they're just going to keep coming, no matter how much it costs. Because most people believe, and I'm not arguing against this, I'm just saying that this is the, this is the assumption. Most people believe that a college degree is the ticket to success, to the middle class, to profitability, to a life that represents the American dream. Gallup did a study not too long ago asking about people's views on college education. Only 6% of the people they polled said college is not, quote, very important. Only 6% of the population thought college wasn't very important. So obviously the vast majority of American society believes that a college education is a really, really big deal. 95% of all high school graduates expect to receive some sort of post-high school education, primarily college and university education. It is a big deal. It is big industry. Uh, 18 to 25-year-olds are going to go to college, and the question is, are we going to be there when they come? Let's talk about vocation. Obviously, college, col the college experience is related to vocational training. College trains future leaders, it, it trains opinion shapers, cultural influencers, but the question that people like me want to ask is what kind of leaders are they going to be? The question is not, are they going to be transformed? The question is, how will they be transformed and by what and by whom? That's the question. Because the question of are they going to be transformed is obvious and clear. They are going to be transformed during the college years. That is just going to happen. Now, Scripture affirms, of course, that work is good. God is a worker. God works and rests and gave us that six and seven day cycle of work and rest. Uh, work is not a result of the fall. Hard, tedious Toilsome work is a result of the fall, but work in and of itself is good and godly. And we affirm that. The Bible condemns those who won't take care of their families. The Proverbs 31 woman is famously praised for rising early and working hard. But, as Miroslav Volf noted, while bread is necessary, while bread is necessary, bread alone is soul killing. And so often we were sending out people who were only about bread alone. Will anyone be there to teach college students that left unexamined, they will begin to justify greed as opportunity, selfishness as success, duplicity as political expediency? But what if students could learn? What if they could learn to see their vocation, not primarily as a vehicle to privilege and prosperity, but as a vehicle for glorifying God? What if they could learn that all work is kingdom work? All work is God's work. That all people, not just ministers, not just 
church workers, but all people are given by God a vocation. And they're given a calling. And they're called into their work as a part of, of people who are helping God transform the cosmos. What if, you could, what if students could begin to see their vocational calling as a calling from God? And that they're participating with God in culture, within the cosmos, to redeem the fallenness that they see every day. You know, the vast majority of our kingdom workforce doesn't even realize that it is a kingdom workforce. Because we, we have, in some ways, church leaders have robbed them of that identity. Listen to this quote from Dorothy Sayers. This is a dated quote. She said this in 1974, but it's still very true. She says, In nothing has the church so lost hold on reality than in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious, or at least uninterested in religion. But is that astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion that seems to have no concern for nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly on Sundays. But the church should be telling what the church should be telling him is this that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he make good tables. So I want to affirm that God has, has a calling for all of us. And that we need to destroy that sac that sacred secular divide that we so often articulate to the people in our churches. As if there's God's work and then there's, you know, regular work, secular work. In uh, Exodus 31, God told Moses that he had filled this man named Bezalel with the Spirit of God. And for what purpose? He filled him with the Spirit of God. To do what? To preach? No. To make artistic designs for works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. He was filled by the Spirit of God to be a woodworker, to be a stonemason, to be a jeweler. Isn't that interesting? And so at the university, students are preparing for careers, vocations, jobs. And campus ministries are perfectly positioned to help students understand that their talents, whether they be singing, acting, writing, computer programs, or solving math equations, are gifts from God to be used for His glory in the context of their secular work. The next point is uh, what we in campus ministry call the Pentecost Principle. Well-known story, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and other church leaders there, and, they, and the apostles begin to preach, and uh, 3,000 people are baptized in that one day. The question, though, is why did God select that event, that exact time, that exact place for that to occur? I think the key is 
In verse 5, it says, There were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from where? From every nation under heaven. Now, was that Luke and hyperbole? I don't know. <laughs> but there were a lot of people from a lot of different nations in one place at one time. And God says, boom, there's where I'm going to break it out. There's where the Holy Spirit will be unleashed on all of these people from all of these nations at one time. And then what happens? The drawing and sending. They're drawn to Jerusalem. They all hear this, the same sermon in, this, in, in their language. They're brought to, brought to the knowledge and saving grace of Jesus, and then they go home. They go home, carrying it with them. So where in our culture is this happening today? Every university in our nation. By the way, you California people, you should know, California leads the nation by far in international students coming to our universities. There are roughly 150,000 international students in the state of California right now. And sadly, tragically, most of them will be utterly ignored. They pass in and they pass out like ghosts, as if they're not even here. Because they don't speak the same language, because they culturally don't seem to mesh with us, we ignore them. I believe that God deeply desires for us to go to other, to other nations. But I think he, he finally said, he, maybe, he, maybe he got tired of waiting on us to do all we could to go to other nations, and he said, okay, I'm just going to bring them to you. And that's what's happening on every university campus in our country. Little old Arkansas State University, where I am, there are roughly 1,000 students from 64 different countries right now. It's, we, we like to talk about it in campus ministry as the Great Commission in reverse. Jesus said, go into all the world. At the university, the world's coming to us. Is that not an amazing opportunity? Is that not something to get excited about? Is that not tragic to let that pass by without doing anything? My goodness, we've got to seize that opportunity. More than a million, one, around 1.1 million international students are coming to the United States every year. That represents over 8% of the total university enrollment in the United States of America. Over 8% of our enrollment are students from other countries. And just as God told Israel to care for the foreigner among you, we are to do the same thing. We are to do the same thing. Just as Israel was called to shine its light and draw nations to itself, and then they go home with the saving knowledge of Yahweh, we are to do the same thing. I remember the night, and I, please don't interpret this as a political statement. I don't mean it this way. So just excuse that and look past it. The night that Donald Trump was inaugurated, the very night he was inaugurated, there was lots of, lots of concern, fear, um, about all types of, all different groups of people. And I remember that night we had a, we had a dinner at our campus ministry at Arkansas State for international students. And I remember sitting next to a, 
young Muslim man from Saudi Arabia. And I, I was so thankful that for that for that young man, he got to experience Christian hospitality. But it made me wonder all the other students that came from the Middle East or from other parts of our world. How did that feel to them? Did they did they receive godly hospitality? Were they extended love and grace? Or were they just sort of ignored? Hmm. We have an incredible opportunity literally to reach the world without ever leaving home through international students. Uh, I want to tell you about a guy named Oki. I wish Daniel were still here because he's a part of his team. Oki is the guy on the right. He's from, he's from Japan. When Oki first came to our campus ministry, he, he, he actually proclaimed himself the king of atheists. <laughs> he kind of bragged about it. Uh, over time, uh, slowly, he eventually came to faith in Jesus. And he eventually um, put on Christ in baptism and became uh, a very adamant and convicted follower of Christ. He was dating a young, a young lady from South Korea. And... Uh, and he told her, I, I, can't, I can't marry you, you know, unless or until you're a Christian. And eventually they began to study together and, and he led her to Christ. And that would be an amazing story if it, if it ended there. But we have, a, we have a, a campus ministry plant that started two years ago that came from our ministry at Arkansas State, went to the University of Washington in Seattle and begin to minister up there. Well, Oki and his new wife, Kate, then moved to Seattle. Oki said, there are a lot of Japanese students up there that think just like me, and I'm going to go talk to them. And they went, and they're still there. And if, and if that were the end of the story, even that would be incredible. But now Oki is setting aside part of his salary and buying Bibles and shipping them to Japan to send to his family so that they can share with people that they know back home. That's just, one, that's just one little story of one international student who came to this little university in, in Arkansas. They're all over. The world is coming to us. The next point I want to make is related to finding meaning. You may know this. Um, all but one of the Ivy League universities in the United States originally started as training schools for ministers. Did you know that? Cornell is the, to my knowledge, is the only one that was not started for that reason. In fact, if you if you go and look, you have to, in some cases, you've got you to search pretty hard. But if you go and, and look for their, uh, their mottos, their, their college mottos that are still there today, what you'll find are mottos like this. For, the, for Harvard University, the motto is, truth for Christ in the church. The motto of Yale is light and truth. Princeton's is, under God's power she flourishes. Dartmouth is a voice crying in the wilderness. 
Columbia, the Columbia motto is, In thy light we shall see light. In 1646, Harvard was founded as an academically rigorous, but also distinctly Christian college. The goal of its Puritan founders was to shape minds and souls. Its first goal was to serve the church by training ministers. You may not know that as late as the, the beginning of the 20th century, many state universities still required daily chapel attendance. And in fact, many of their uh, administrators and presidents and chancellors would refer to their state university institutions as Christian. In fact, all the way up until that time, some of the universities even required Sunday, Sunday church attendance. By, um, by World War II, that had begun to, to, to more or less fade. <coughs> but from Harvard, for instance, Harvard, its founding, all the way through the Civil War, most universities saw their mission similarly. To transform not only minds but hearts and souls. Now, today, we we don't. I, I don't have to tell you that's just simply no longer true. I'm deeply thankful for universities like Pepperdine that still that still maintain that goal. Most, of course, Pepperdine is a private institution. Most state universities have long since abandoned that goal. Most, most faculty members today would tell you even if they had the desire, they don't have the right to speak in those terms with students. And so in many cases there is an utter, uh, an utter lack, an absence of any sense of where to go for meaning, for purpose, for ultimate transcendence. Those, 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 those most Important questions that we all want to ask during those college years. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Does any of this even matter? Is there anybody at the State University to help them answer those questions? At the State University, typically, the only answers that are, that are ever provided are, are naturalistic, which are, of course, wholly inadequate. Will there be anybody there to teach them transcendence, to point them toward ultimate meaning and purpose and how to find it? And that's really the question. One, one author said that the era of spiritual authority belonging to college is long gone. But there is an upside to this. The upside is that the, in the absence of transcendence, a vacuum begins to be created because human beings are wired by God to seek transcendence. Are we not? We have a deep desire to believe, to want to know that we, that we will live forever, that, that our life has meaning, that our life has purpose, that our life matters. That we're on a mission, that we're on a, we're on a journey, that we're going somewhere. We're not just a bunch of random uh, chaotic molecules that have collided for a, for a few decades and then we dissipate into the, the atmosphere once again. we got to believe, we want to believe desperately that we're here for a reason. Miroslav Volf again 
He says, reference to transcendence isn't an add-on to humanity. Rather, it defines human beings. Wolf calls our desire for transcendence, quote, the structural restlessness of human hearts. And yet for so many students, as one author stated it, college is little more than, quote, the anxious pursuit of marketable skills and overcrowded, undersourced institutions with little attention paid to that elusive entity sometimes called the whole person. Next point is college, the university years, are a deeply intense time for many students of faith exploration. Whether they come to school with faith or have none, the college years can be an incredibly important time of faith exploration. N.T. Wright said this. T.S. Eliot, writing in his book, The Idea of a Christian Society, argued forcefully that societies do not stand still. If they do not embrace a positive ideal, they will drift in some other direction. We have seen his prediction come true. Those who flatter themselves that they still live in a Christian society today are simply out of touch with reality. And this is no more true, this is no more real than on the State University campus. For students coming to the university with faith, Oftentimes they will experience what I would call a perfect storm in which they're no longer answerable to their parents or other authorities or other sources of grounding, but they're also still not encumbered by the responsibilities of adulthood. And so they're free to explore. <laughs> and so it's sadly it's during these times when students will so often drift away from their faith Now, as they're exposed to various alternative viewpoints, as they critically reflect on the strengths of their current views, I would submit that we have nothing to fear in those conversations. Christians don't have anything to fear from those conversations. Christian students don't have anything to fear from those conversations. But if they enter into that marketplace of ideas, having lost faith community, they can be in trouble. Does that make sense? However, that same dynamic also works in our favor. It also works in reverse. Because as students who come to the university with no faith begin to, quote, try on other options, guess what? They may be very well open to what Jesus is offering. In other words, the college years represent, and this is something I say a lot, this window of receptivity. It's a, it's a moment in, in most people's lives when, when they have this unprecedented openness to new ideas, new, new perspectives, new things. And so, so the college years represent an incredibly important window of receptivity for us to share faith in Jesus Christ with them. I know that statistics vary widely on this issue, but one, one study that I, that I looked at recently said that only 2% in the evangelical Christian world, only 2% of people come to faith after age 29. And I would submit probably most of us would say that that falls into our, into our uh, 
understanding. You know, that's, that's been our experience as well. It's been mine. I mean, it's very rare for people who are much older than that. It happens, but it's rare to come to faith. So in many ways, for many people, the college years represent the last best window of receptivity for them to come to faith in Jesus. Big deal. I, I, I'm not going to talk about generational stuff, but I think you're all aware that the, the generation that's being called Generation Z is now rising up and entering college. Um, depending on where you, where you draw that line between millennials and Gen Z, they're already seniors in college or they may just be entering as freshmen, but they're there. They are, as some sociologists have, have confirmed, the first truly post-Christian generation. Atheist, among Gen Z, atheist is the biggest, quote, religious group. The nuns, <laughs> N-O-N-E-S, is the largest religious group in Gen Z. So it is critical. It is critical for God's people to come alongside college students during this time. And then the last thing I want to I want to share, the last category I want to share is that the college years represent a what I would call a season of crucial decisions. And this may be the most obvious one of all. You're probably aware of all these things that we're we're about to talk about. You think about all the decisions that get made during the college years. We've already talked about vocation, and that's a huge one, right? I mean, the decision to what whatever you point yourself in in terms of your professional work huge implications for how your life turns out. That usually happens during the college years. Another thing that's crucial, and we've already hit on this a little bit, but uh, worldview. James Sire is a, is a scholar on worldview, and his definition is simply the fundamental perspective from which one addresses every issue of life. In other words, it's the lens that you put on to see the world. Um, one author said, it's impossible to have a view from nowhere. In other words, everybody has a world view. Everybody stands somewhere and sees the world from that perspective. Now, this is, if, if, you don't, if you don't remember anything else, remember this statement. Very few students come to college with a for, fully formed world view. Very few leave college without one. If you, don't, if you don't hear anything else I say today, remember that. Because that one fact should compel you <laughs> to understand how big a deal this is. Very few students enter college with, with a fully formed worldview. Very few leave college without one. Because it happens during those years, during that season of life. That's when they figure out how they're going to see, understand, and interpret the universe in which they live. Marriage, that's a biggie. If you get married, some people don't, of course, but if you choose to get married, uh, now I, I realize that the, the age for marriage is trending upward. Um, it's probably closer to 30 than 20 nowadays for a, lot of, for a lot of folks. But the fact still remains that oftentimes if you're going to get married, that often occurs, that, that 
that pairing up often occurs during the college years. Um, so when you, think of, when you think of vocation, when you think of worldview, and when you think of who you marry, are there three bigger decisions in your entire life than those? You know, and, and just marriage by itself, if you are a married person, is there any decision you've ever made that has had more bearing on the trajectory of your life than the person that you give your life to in marriage? A huge decision. And so often students are making it without any input from God's people. And then the last one is probably the most obvious, but it's also incredibly important. It's one that we maybe don't even really think is too big a deal, but the Bible actually talks about it a whole lot, and that's friendships. Right? You will inevitably, all of us, we will inevitably become very similar to, to our closest friends. Uh, I heard one person say, and I think this is probably true, who you are up to about age 18 is primarily determined by your family. Who you are after that is primarily determined by your friends. Your closest friendships. Proverbs talks about it all the time, right? Be careful picking friends, right? Evil communications, corrupt good morals, all that sort of thing. Alan Lloyd McGinnis, who wrote an a very important book on friendship says this. Friendship is the springboard into every other love. People with no friends usually have a diminished capacity for sustaining any kind of love. They tend to go through a succession of marriages, be estranged from various family members, and have trouble getting along at work. On the other hand, those who learn to love their friends tend to make long and fulfilling marriages work well on business teams, and enjoy their children. So in other words, friendships will determine so much about who you become, and they, and, they, and they help teach you how to love. Now, I don't know about you, but some of the people that I still today consider my closest friends are people that I connected with and became <coughs> friends with during my college and young adult years. Isn't there just something really special about the friendships that you form during that season in life? I think for most people, that's probably true. And, and so these friendships, who you connect with in college, those people will often be, far more than the friends you had in high school, those college-era friends will often be the ones that will be walking with you for the rest of your life, to one degree or another. Not all of them, of course, but some of them. And they will determine who you become so, so heavily, and they will help you learn how to love in other forms of relationships. There was a, a study that I would really encourage you to go check out. It's the longest and largest longitudinal, longitudinal psychological study that I believe has ever been done in the United States. It began in 1938, Harvard University. 268 Harvard College male sophomores. That's how it started in 1938. It's greatly expanded since then. It began as an attempt to identify the most critical factors contributing to a happy and healthy life, however that is defined. They now have 80 years of data gathering, and their findings are actually very simple yet profound. This is what uh, the director of the study, the current director of the study, there have been more than one because it's 80 years old, the current director of the study shared in a TED talk. He said, when we gather together, 
Everything we knew about them at about age 50, it wasn't their middle age cholesterol levels that predicted how they were going to grow old. It was how satisfied they were in their relationships. The people who were most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were healthiest at age 80. This longitude, this huge 80-year longitudinal study says that it's not really even about what your doctor tells you. The primary way that you're physically healthy is about the health of your relationships. Isn't that amazing? So let me wrap this up. I know we're about out of time. You know, sometimes we come to an event like, like this event at this amazing institution called Pepperdine, and sometimes we don't see the forest for the trees. In other words, you ever think about why this school is here? I mean, the Bible lectures are only one week a year. The rest of the time, it's a university. Why is it here? I'm pretty sure we're sitting on some of the most valuable property in the entire world. Why is, why is this what it's used for? Because I think the people that founded Pepperdine University knew what I'm trying to convince you of today. The incredible power, the incredible potency that exists within the college years. Of all the things that George Pepperdine could have done, or the people that founded all the other Christian, or in, uh, Christian colleges, of all the things they could have done, why did they start colleges? Because they knew, they knew what I hope we can all learn, and that is, <laughs> there is such incredible power and potency in God's people coming alongside college students and shaping their lives and setting like a bow shot from an arrow helping set the trajectory for the rest of their lives. Often, who they are when they leave college, the direction they're headed in when they leave college, will continue on until they die. That's how powerful this season of life is. Well, I want to say one more thing. leave you the quote. I'll stop there. This is a quote that we call campus ministers love to use. It's from, well I'll show you in a minute who it's from. The university is a clear-cut fulcrum. In other words, fulcrum being to lever, to move the world. is a clear-cut fulcrum with which to move the world. The problem here is for the church to realize that no greater service can it render both itself and the cause of the gospel than to try to recapture the universities for Christ, on whom they were all originally founded. We talked about that, right? One of the best ways of treating the macrocosm is through the handle of the universities in which millions of youths destined to positions of leadership spend in rigorous training between four and ten years of the most formative periods of their life, more potently than by any other means, change the university and you change the world. Charles Habib Malik, former president of the UN General Assembly.
And that's the message I want to leave you with. If we can change the university, we can change the world. For the kingdom of God. And that's why I submit to you that it is the most strategic and sadly the most neglected mission field in our brotherhood, in our fellowship. And I'll show you a couple of practical things. Uh, this is a map of, uh, as best we can tell, the, universe, the, uh, the campus ministries that currently exist in, in Churches of Christ. Um, Neil and I and Linda and others have worked on, you know, we work on keeping this data accurate, but you have to realize that um, some of these are maybe just one professor meeting for a Bible study in a classroom, you know. Uh, so these are different levels of campus ministry. But this is the one I really want you to pay attention to. These are all the of the universities that we know of with at least 10,000 students. So this, this doesn't even count the smaller schools. Universities with 10,000 students or more that have no campus ministry presence from Churches of Christ. And some of them have no campus ministry presence from any, from any denomination. Imagine the thousands and thousands and thousands of students who are passing through the halls of these colleges and universities every year, utterly untouched by God's people. It's a tragedy. And we've got to work to get it better. So I'll stop there and... Uh, Let's you, let's see, we got, uh, well, the, the, goal, the goal of this class was, and Linda, thank you for inviting me to do this. The goal of this class was just to hopefully inspire um, some thoughts and some processing in some of you to go back to your home churches and, and realize how big a deal this is. If you have a university nearby, um, so important for God's people to be there in whatever form you can be. It, it doesn't necessarily have to begin as some big grand thing. It could be small efforts. Um, but I would just really encourage you to start, get the wheels turning a little bit toward inviting students and connecting with students. Uh, this, is a, this is such an important goal for God's kingdom. So we're out of time, so I'm going to let you go. But um, I, I gave you my email address, and if you want to contact me, I would love to talk with you more. Uh, and if you want a more formal version of this presentation in writing, I can send you that as well. But thanks so much for being here.